I'm one of the pastors here. I'm excited to be able to share with you this morning. Uh, 2016 was an interesting year for a lot of people. Uh, the more people I talk to, as Eric alluded to, the more people are glad that it is over. Uh, there have been a lot of hard things that have happened this year, and there's something about a new year, something especially about this specific day, where you have this hope that things will be and can be different. Uh, that hope might be especially fresh if you are an Ohio State Buckeyes fan or a Washington Huskies fan, uh, as yesterday was a rough day for you. I have good news for you. Uh, my extended family is deep into uh, the Ohio State lore. And the good news is, as of today, for 2017, your team is undefeated. And so uh, carry that with you as you uh, watch the rest of our college playoffs. Um, but we are going to be talking about Jesus as king. What is life like when Jesus is your king? How do you interact when he is your king? Over the last month, we have been talking about Jesus being over different things. And we've talked about how Jesus is over history and over Caesar, how he is over Satan, and ultimately how he is over everything. Even last uh, Sunday, we celebrated the Christmas morning where we celebrate the birth of that king. It's one thing to know that Jesus is over all these things, but it's another thing to live like he is over all of these things. What I hope that happens this morning is that you leave this room with a renewed understanding of who Jesus is as our king, but also what life can actually look like when you engage him in the ways that he wants to engage you. We are going to be in the book of Mark. If you don't have your Bible with you, uh, there's one on the seat rack in front of you. We are going to be using our Bibles. The words will not be on the screen. If you reach the Bible in front of you, it is on page 29 of the New Testament side of that Bible. Some of you are making New, New Year's resolutions to read your Bible more. Uh, I am giving you a head start on that. You are one for one if you are here this morning because you will be turning to the book of Mark and actually reading in it. We are going to be reading a, a story uh, that many of us have heard before, but there are some things about the person of Jesus that I really hope that we can draw from this and that change the way we actually live our lives. Not just our understanding, not just our cognitive belief system, but actually it changes the way that we live. A little background going into this story. Uh, Jesus has been on the scene for a little while. He has been baptized by uh, his cousin, John the Baptist. He has started to do some miracles. He has healed some blind people, some sick people with diseases. He has healed crippled people. He has also uh, taken demon-possessed people and, and taken the demons out and freed them from the captivity that they were in. He has chosen his disciples, and he has started to teach amongst the people and, and interact with the leaders of the Jewish people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were up against him. So he has been active to this point. In fact, this story takes place on the night of a day where he spent the entire day teaching in parables, teaching about what the kingdom of God was like. So we are pick up the story in Mark chapter 4, verse 35 says, on that day when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took 
they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him. And there arose such a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? And he got up and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who, is, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Familiar story, isn't it? It's a great story. It's a story that we heard when we were children. It's a story that they have flannel graphs made out of. And it is a story that I think we need to not only understand, but I think it's a story that changes our lives. It changes the way we view Jesus. It changes the way we interact with him. The crux of the story, the main part that pops out, is the moment where Jesus displays his strength, where he stands up and he says to the wind, and he rebukes it and says, calm, be still, hush. It's this moment where Jesus exerts a power that is unlike one that anyone had ever seen to that point. See, to that point, there had been many people who had done many different things and conjured up miracles and done things out of maybe even other powers, but no one had ever controlled the weather. No one had ever commanded the weather. Sure, in the Old Testament, we have people who prayed to God that it wouldn't rain, Elijah, right? And there's other situations, but at this point, the disciples who were just surrounded with uh, these, these moments of healing, and they're surrounded with teaching, and they're surrounded with, with Jesus acting out in ways that amazed them, they were all of a sudden engaged in a situation that they could not understand, one that actually terrified them. And there's some significant pieces to this miracle that Jesus did. Uh, in verse 39, it says, and he got up and, the, and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. Another way of thinking about it is him getting up and just being like, enough already, enough. Have you ever had to do that? Maybe with your kids in the backseat, right? They're going crazy and all of a sudden dad turns around, enough. And everyone's like, Goo, right? It's like that moment where there's an authority that is speaking into this moment. And Jesus takes this moment. Imagine what it would have been like. Imagine, right? You have this, this, this view, this, this idea of what it might have been like on this boat. You are with experienced fishermen. You are with people who know what they're doing. And all of a sudden, they find themselves at the brink. They find themselves at the place where they are without hope, where they don't think that they are going to survive. This is it. Jesus don't you care that we're about to drown? And he sits up, he gets up, and he just says, enough already. Do you get that? We are here. He stands up and says, enough already. Hush. Chaos. We're going to die. I can see my face in the water. Like there is this, this transformation that takes place with the words 
that come out of Jesus. There is a power that is displayed that is supposed to transform the way we think about him as well. Now, I want to clarify something, because a lot of times we view this as a story and not as an historical event. Throughout the Bible, there are lots of places where we see actions that Jesus is taking place, and many people say, oh yeah, that was a story that developed into a legend, and this was just a story about Jesus. And I want to kind of help us to understand the writing, the way this, this story is written tells us that this was not a mere legend. Legends historically, until about 200 years ago, were very, very vague on details. In fact, they were often without any sort of random details that didn't contribute directly to the impact of the story. You would never have a story about Hercules that described, oh, and then he put on his blue toga as he fought the monster. It it wasn't like this kind of detail-oriented telling of a story. But if we look at this story, there are certain details throughout it that, that I think we need to look at. And because it's not just this cognitive understanding we need to have about this. It's not just educational. It says, uh, like, for instance, it says they took him just as he was. At the beginning of the story, it just includes this little thing. It's just as he was. That was an unnecessary detail for the story. Another one, it says, and there were other boats with them. That's another, maybe what we would see as unnecessary detail. It says that he was asleep on the stern of the boat on a pillow. What might seem like unnecessary details. But what it does tell us is that this was not a legend that was being written. This was a remembrance. This was an actual event where people remembered these details and said, we need to include these details. Oh, yeah, I totally remember that. Oh, remember he was asleep. Yeah, on the stern, on the pillow. Oh, and remember we got in the boat. Oh, yeah, and there were other boats with us. And remember we got him after that long day, and he came, yeah, just as he was. He got on. And the importance to this that is more than just understanding this educationally is This puts us in a position to where we realize that this just isn't a legend, but this really happened. And if this really happened, and this is a real Jesus that did these real things, what are we going to do with this Jesus? Because he's just not, he's not just a good man. He's not just a wise teacher. In fact, that's what the disciples found themselves having to deal with. In verse uh, 41, it's talked about their response. It says, They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? See, all of a sudden, they had to realize that they were not just in the boat with a miracle worker who was good with words. But they were with the word. The word that was God. The word that was with God in the beginning. The word that became flesh. They were with the one who spoke things into existence. 
by him and from him and for him. All things that were made were made. This is Jesus. This is not just a man from Nazareth. This was the king of kings. This was the bright and morning star. This was the Messiah. This was the Lord of lords, the prince of peace, the lion of Judah. And they were terrified because they had not started to put these pieces together. And all of a sudden, they started to realize just how big their God is, just how powerful this Jesus was. Is this the Jesus that we worship? Is this the Jesus that you pray to? Is this the Jesus that you ask for help? Is this the Jesus that you talk about your problems with? Is this the Jesus that is in your boat? The one who can speak peace into the most unpredictable of creations. You see, the sea was something that people had long been terrified of. This is the most unpredictable, most powerful piece of the planet that man had never been able to figure out and tame. When you were on the sea, all bets were off. Yet, in that boat at that time was one who had the power with the word to calm the sea and not just stop the wind. It's one thing to say, be still and the wind stops. But to say, be still and the waves go flat, that's impossible. It says it was completely calm. Have you ever made a splash in a pool and then you don't make any more splashes? What happens? There's still sloshing going on. It's still moving around. And all of a sudden, they are in the midst of a giant storm with waves going over the boat. He stands up and says, enough already. Still perfectly calm. A power. A powerful Jesus. A powerful king that we serve. Jesus is an amazingly powerful king. And when he came at Christmas, he was given a name. The angel told Joseph, and his name shall be what? Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. This might be even more miraculous than the fact that Jesus calmed the storm. The fact that Jesus was with them in the boat when he did it. You see, Jesus did not have to be with them. His power was not subject to him being present in the boat. He could have said, go across to the other side. I'll catch up with you later. A giant storm was going on and he could have calmed it except for he chose to be with them in the boat. If we look at verse 35 at the beginning, it says, On that day when the evening came, he said to them, Let's go over to the other side together. 
Let's go. And it says, leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him. There's this idea that the God of the universe, the one who spoke all things into existence, who has the power over the wind and the waves, is with us in our boat, in our storms. Jesus was subject to the storm. The same wind that was terrifying the disciples was blowing on him. The same waves that were crashing over the boat, threatening to drown the disciples, were crashing over the boat and soaking him. He was not a far-off God watching the storm take place and being like, oh, I wonder what they're going to do. looks like a rough situation. He was with them on the boat in their presence. Do you know that Jesus is with you? He is with you in your storm. And do you know that that Jesus is also the one that can calm that storm with a word? That the power that he has is greater than anything we will ever, ever face. But there's something about Jesus that is different from his disciples, even though he is on the boat and he is with them. Verse 37, it says, And there... uh, uh, and there arose such a fierce gale of wind that the waves were breaking overboard so much that the boat was already filling up. He's in the storm with them. And then it says this, Jesus himself was in the stern asleep on the cushion. See, Jesus was in the storm experiencing the same thing. But there was one key thing that he was not experiencing. Fear. Fear. Fear was not part of his experience. He was not afraid. He was so not afraid that he was able to sleep through the process. Have you ever seen someone who's not afraid of something when everyone else is? It's almost like you think, what's wrong with you? You should be afraid. But my question is, if Jesus, the creator of all things, who is with us, wasn't afraid, then why or should we be afraid? Should we be afraid? And I am guessing that fear was never meant to be part of our process that we experience when Jesus is with us and when we know he's there. In fact, we are told that there's something that casts out fear. What is it? Right? Love casts out fear. 1 John 4.18, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. 
It's a great passage out of 1 John talking about what love is and what isn't. But what love does not include is an attitude and a heart of fear. Yet fear is so preeminent and so dominant in our lives, is it not? But I don't know if it has to be. Should have the disciples been afraid? Should the disciples be afraid? You have experienced fishermen, right? Guys who have lived on the lake, grew up on the lake, done the, know, know the storms. You know, like the Sea of Galilee is surrounded by mountains on the south side. There's this passage, and these winds would come through these passages and cause storms. And they knew how to handle the storms. So they were out in the water, and things were going good, and then things started not going so good, and then things were going bad. And then you know, you know when Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, and all these people who have this experience, and all of a sudden they're like, we're going to die. It's, we, we're going to die, right? And the panic starts setting in. We're going to start, you know, shoveling the water out of the bottom of the boat. <gasps> Get the sails! Someone falls in. They grab them out. Like, there's this, the hair on the back of the neck's going up. You know, that's that moment, right? That moment where fear takes over, and all of a sudden, all reason goes out, and all proper thinking escapes you, and all of a sudden, you find yourself, and they found themselves asking him this question. Teacher, don't you care that we are drowning? We're about to drown. Don't you care? What it showed is a couple of things. They had yet to understand who was in the boat with them fully. They had yet to experience his presence in such an intimate way, but what it really showed is they did not understand his love for them. For if they had understood his love, they never would have asked that question. And I want to give them a break because they would understand that love. They would one day, but now they hadn't. And so fear had caused them to wonder what is going on here and something that often plagues our thought process when we are in the middle of a storm is is this a punishment for something have you ever thought that god are you, are you just is this a punishment am i receiving a punishment for for what i've done wrong And you live your life thinking, is this a punishment? And fear comes out, and that's a direct connection. There's a direct connection in that way of thinking. But what they didn't realize is that perfect love casts out fear, because fear is connected to punishment. But when perfect love has been displayed for you, there is no longer a need for punishment. And perfect love was cast out for the disciples. And there is no longer going to be a need for punishment but they had not seen it yet. But we struggle with that. Another question that we often ask in the midst of our storm, we start thinking in these ways. If you care about me, then you won't let this happen. Does that sound familiar? The internal dialogue that's happening? Basically the exact same question, the exact same statement that was, that was made by the disciples here. If you care about us, You won't let this happen. Another one. If you let this happen, then you don't care about me. 
And all of a sudden, our understanding of God's love for us, of Jesus' love for us, is conditional upon that storm and what he does in this moment. That the love that Jesus has for us, it comes and goes, and our belief in it comes and goes depending on what storm we are or are not in. And what Jesus wants us to know is that his love for us has been made firm. It has been established in such a way that we never need doubt his love for us. His disciples would start to understand that. They would understand that as he walked to the cross. And in weeks and months afterwards, as he engaged with them and showed them what actually happened on that cross. You see, when Jesus sat in the garden, we did see him experience a moment A moment where he may have even felt a tinge of apprehension and fear as he says, is there any other way? May this cup pass from me. You see, the physical death of Jesus, I think, gets more attention than it deserves. Because the real suffering, the real price that was paid happened with what happened to Jesus as he took on the depth and darkness of the burden of sin of all mankind. You know that feeling? You know that feeling when you've done something that you know, that you know was so wrong? an act of anger, an act of selfishness, an act of lust, an act of defiance. And you have that guilt, you have that weight upon you. You have the grossness of that sin weighing upon your heart. You see, when Jesus said, is there any other way? May this cup pass from me. I think what he was referring to was the fact that he was going to have to bear that himself. That that weight and that darkness and that guilt and that shame was going to be placed upon him. And that's not just for that one sin of that one person in that one moment. This was all sin for all people, for all time. And the grossness of it covered him. And then he had to receive the wrath of God upon those sins himself. An act of love 
that would change the disciples. An act of love that would shift the way they behaved, that would shift the way they responded to storms. For now, they would know for all time that Jesus was strong. Stronger than the storms that they would ever face. That he was with them. In the midst of their storms, he didn't abandon them. And that no matter what storm they were in, they knew, they knew that he loved them. And we have a chance to live like that. Did you notice how the disciples shifted the way they lived? All of a sudden, they weren't running from storms, they were running into storms. Why? Jesus was with them. He's stronger. He loves me. He knows what I'm about to encounter. I no longer am driven by fear, but I am driven by the presence of my King. I now have a kingdom to fight for where my king is good, he is strong, he is with me. Let's go. Let's go and accomplish the mission. I don't care what it costs. There's some great stories, right, in the Bible where we see this take place. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Great story when you were a kid, right? You have King Nebuchadnezzar builds a giant statue image and says, idol says, you need to bow down to this, and if you don't, you're going to get thrown Where? fiery furnace. There are three that refuse. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They interacted with King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, you aren't but bowing. I'm going to throw you into the fiery pit. And now what gods are going to save you? What are you going to do now? And then they replied like this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give an answer concerning this matter. But uh, if it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve the gods, or, uh, serve your gods, or worship the golden image that you have set up. I love that moment, right? They had this understanding that Our God can save us. But even if he does not, we're not going to bow. It does not shift our thinking. It does not shift the way that we engage. And it's so cool as we see how the story continues. King Nebuchadnezzar throws him in the fire and he stokes the fire seven times, right? Seven times hotter than it was supposed to be. So hot that the guards that threw them in burned up. And all of a sudden, uh, Nebuchadnezzar sees them in the fire and it says that, that he was astounded because there was a fourth person in the fire who shined like the sun. It says that they were walking around in the fire unburned. And that Jesus met them in the fire. Not necessarily, he wasn't like, they didn't see him until they were in the fire, but he was with them and delivered them 
and rescued them. It's one thing to see someone in a story, uh, a Bible story, and you're all, yeah, yeah, but what about real life? What does this look like? I think we got a, kind of a, a cool glimpse of this. Uh, if you follow football, there's a guy named Derek Carr. He's a quarterback for the Raiders. Uh, and last Saturday, he was uh, finishing up the best season that the Raiders have had in 20 years. He's a young guy. He was, uh, he's a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and he was accomplishing the biggest goals that he had in life. And last Saturday, he uh, was tackled towards the end of the game, and he broke his leg. Is done. They were going to go to the playoffs. They had the best chance they've had in years and years. And he is, his hopes are dashed. It was on Christmas Eve. He's been living his life for Jesus. And all of a sudden, he's done. Yet, this is the tweet that he gave that night. Thank you to everyone who has been praying for me. Things happen in life that we don't always understand. But I do know Notice the caps. But I do know this. I serve a God that loves me, and that is the ultimate healer. I am not worried one bit. I will bounce back and be on my feet uh, within no time. Thank you for all the love that you Raider Nation showed me in that statement today. I will be back. And this is a team sport, so, we, so everything we want is still out there for us. See y'all soon. God bless and Merry Christmas. Our storms don't have to take us out. And they don't have to cause us to think that this life is about us as individuals. That we are part of something bigger. That we are part of something greater. And though something might happen to me personally, it doesn't mean that it is shifting what God is doing with the greater we. Then 2017, it is us, Calvary Church, engaging with a good, kind, strong, wise King who is with us and who loves us. Because we will face storms. We have great hope because... A new year has started. But what if our focus when we are in the storm was no longer on the wind and the waves, but became upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is now at the right hand of God. We get to respond in communion. And the thing I want us to think about is the significance of the communion table. The communion table reminds us of the three things that this story reminded us of. That the price that was paid with his body and his blood and him taking on our shame was great enough to absolve us from guilt as we stand before Almighty God, we will be considered innocent instead of guilty if we put our trust in Jesus. That he is with us. That he is not an absent Savior. The last thing he told his disciples as he was leaving this earth was, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And he is with us. 
today. And I think most significantly, the communion table tells us that he loves us. And as we approach the communion table, I encourage you to do it with a family and do it maybe as an individual, but take the next few minutes to reflect. Is Jesus the Almighty God in your heart and mind? Does he have power over everything? Do you know that Jesus is with you right now in the midst of your storm? He is with Linda Cowan. And do you know that he loves you? And he proved it. And he'll continue to show you but he loves you for all time, no matter where you find yourself. It's also a great chance to reflect and confess. Chance to reestablish the rightful place of Jesus in your life as you enter 2017 to be able to glorify him for who he is and embrace what he has for you. The words of this song talk about Jesus' strength and his love. But they also include the words to the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer and communion are things that we do often. But maybe this morning it can have a deeper meaning as you reflect on the truth and the goodness of our Savior. Lord, in a few minutes as we examine our hearts and we come up and partake in communion, as we take the cup that represents your blood and your bread that represents your body, and we understand the depth of cost not just physically, but the depth of cost that you paid as you took on the burden and guilt of our sin and the wrath of God. May we find ourselves entering life without fear. May we find ourselves entering life in confidence not only in the act of love that you did, but in the act of power that immediately followed as you were not held down by the grave, as you conquered sin and death on our behalf so that we might live, not just know, but live with you. May we find joy in this moment in a good, good king. Give me the food I need.
live through the day. Forgive me as I forgive the people that wrong me. Leave me far from temptation and deliver me from
Your love is strong. Your 